Well, preaching from this first section of John chapter 1 gives me uh, an excuse to select that hymn for us uh, to sing this evening. Uh, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, John's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll be considering the first 18 verses together this evening. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before reading His Word. Our great God, we thank You for uh, the privilege and the high calling that it is as Your people to gather and to hear from Your Word. May Your Word um, in its depth and riches this night uh, bring comfort to those uh, who are in need of such comfort. Uh, Bring conviction where our hearts are hardened and perhaps darkened against You. And again, to see the glorious riches of our Savior as we encounter Him on every page of Scripture and in such a rich way here in John's Gospel in these first few verses. Uh, Give us clarity, uh, give us attentiveness, give us hearts that are filled with wonder and awe. It's in the name of Christ, our risen Savior, we pray. Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of our God. This is a familiar passage that we turn to frequently during the Christmas season. It's a wonderful amazing text that teaches us a great deal about the miraculous incarnation of our Lord. This is really such a grand and lofty text that we could really just sit here for the next half an hour and read it over and again and benefit tremendously. It's one of those passages that conveys the weight and the magnitude of the identity of our Savior and the wonderful work of redemption that He accomplished on our behalf. Anytime a pastor approaches a text in his study, there's always a a sense of weightiness that he feels. How can I really do justice to proclaiming the depth of the riches of God's Word? And I think that's particularly the case here with John's prologue. It's here in these 18 verses that John lays the groundwork for everything else that's going to come later in his gospel narrative. Now, before we turn to the content of the prologue, let's think for just a few moments about the unique nature of the gospel narrative. You might remember having a kaleidoscope as a child. 
and being fascinated by all the various colors and patterns as you looked through that little viewfinder and rotated it in your hands. The way that everything fits together creates this beautiful scene before you as you look through it to the light that lays beyond it, bringing illumination. In the same way, the Bible is made up of different types of literature, historical narrative, poetry, prophecy, apocalyptic literature, epistles, and gospels. And they all fit together in this harmonious whole with this beautiful, variegated nature with one author that lies behind it all. And it's this one author who illuminates the truth of Scripture to us. This one author who presents over and again on every page this central message, a message that culminates here as we come to John chapter 1. So how are the Gospels unique? What is it about the Gospels that puts them in a category all by themselves? How are they different from other portions of the Bible? Now, of course, they're primarily narrative, telling us the story of Jesus' life. The Gospels focus upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus, who He is and what He came to accomplish. The Gospels record for us the things that Jesus did and the things that He said the miraculous signs that he performed, and the in-depth teaching and instruction that he conveyed to his followers. Even as the Gospels record historical events surrounding the public ministry of Jesus, they are selective in nature because they write with a particular purpose. And so in John's case, he tells us as much at the end of his Gospel. If you'll go over to chapter 20. Chapter 20, at the very end... Uh, And even on into chapter 21, it acts uh, somewhat as a summary of what John's purpose is all about as he writes. You'll see there, chapter 20 and verse 30, he says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so here, John acknowledges that he could have recorded many other things, but the things that he does record are recorded with purposeful selectivity. He writes to convince us that Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that we might believe, and that by believing we might have life in His name. Back in chapter 1, in verse 12, we read that those who receive Him, those who believe... In his name, he gives the right to become adopted children of God. Then at the end of John's gospel, again in chapter 20, there in verse 28, we read of Thomas's confession, a confession of belief as he confesses, my Lord and my God. And so this theme of belief at the beginning and at the end really brackets everything in between, sort of like bookends, holding your books together on your shelf, that without them, it would sort of fall apart into disarray. I can remember a number of years ago at a summer camp that I attended probably when I was in middle school. And our camp counselor had us read through the Gospel of John each morning, two or three chapters or so, so that we had it read by the end of camp. And he said, as you read, I want you to underline the word believe every time you see it in John's Gospel. Around 50 times, John calls the reader to believe to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. 
And therefore, your life is to change as a result of who he is and what he did. What else is unique about the Gospels? We could say that the focus of each of the four Gospels is upon what we call the passion of Jesus. That is, his final week of ministry and suffering upon the cross. And so all of the Gospels can be divided up into two main sections. The first section focuses upon Jesus' public ministry, a ministry which lasts roughly three years. And the second section of the Gospel focuses upon that final week of his earthly ministry, again culminating in his death and resurrection and ascension. And so in John's Gospel, of his 21 chapters, chapters 1 through 11 contain three years of public ministry, while chapters 12 through 21 focus upon that final week of his earthly life. Well, so what are some unique things about John's Gospel? How is John's Gospel different? What are some things that set his Gospel apart from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are together called the Synoptic Gospels? And they're called the Synoptics because of their similarity, both in terms of content and order in which we find things as they unfold before us. Each of them have unique elements, but because of the overlap between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it creates this symmetry among them. Well, John is unique in the recording of a number of conversations that Jesus has with other people that we don't find in the Synoptics. In particular, his conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. His conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. His lengthy instruction on the work of the Holy Spirit and his high priestly prayer for his disciples and for those who follow the instruction, the teaching of the disciples in chapters 14 through 17. These are found in John alone. Such miraculous signs as turning water into wine in chapter 2 and raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. These are found only in John's gospel. There is emphasis throughout John, as he has throughout the book, uh, peppered those seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And this is where we see John draw heavily upon Old Testament covenantal concepts. These I am statements point us back, of course, to Exodus chapter 3, in which the Lord reveals himself as the great I am, the eternal and self-existent one. And so while much of John is unique, we could say that collectively the four gospel writers reflecting their own style and audience are all concerned with the same thing, and that is bearing witness to the divine nature of the person of Jesus. We could liken the four Gospels to perspectives on this momentous event of the earthly ministry of Christ. Imagine four individuals bearing witness to a monumental life-altering event. They all witness the same event. They all view it from a different angle. They then relay what they have seen to different audiences. One is interviewed by the local news. One returns home to tell his family and close friends what he has seen. Another is called to a nearby university to give a lecture on what he saw. The fourth goes about writing a research paper for publication. Perspective, intent, audience, 
individual style. All of these things are reflected in the deep and rich content of the gospel narratives. One divine author behind them all. The Holy Spirit inspiring each while each is reflective of their own style, intent, audience, and so forth. So let's shift to consider some of the major themes that John captures for us in the prologue. Most important is an understanding of the identity of Jesus, of who Jesus is. This is the most important question that one could ask. Who is this word who has spoken? Who is this word who has always been? As you read through John's gospel, you grow to understand that the way that you answer this question has eternal implications for the stakes truly are life or death. The opening words of verse 1 take us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, back to the creation account, where in the beginning God was and God spoke with creative power. This one of whom John bears witness has been since the beginning. He has eternal existence and that he has always been with God and yet is a distinct person within the Godhead. One of the earliest heresies that the church fathers had to address was called Arianism, in which, among other things, they claimed that there was a time when Jesus was not. Perhaps he was one of the first creatures, perhaps given extra power and so forth and all everything else that was created, but nonetheless a subordinate being to God. But it simply could not be stated more clearly by John. He was in the beginning. He has always been. There has never been a time in which he was not. He is the living God incarnate. And he has come now in the fullness of time and is ushering in a new creation in this new beginning with a new people who find their life in him alone. And so as John points us back to Genesis, he is pointing out the continuity of the message of Scripture the consistency of God's word, that the God who spoke there at the beginning is the same God who speaks now, for his nature is unchangeable. That which was spoken at the very beginnings in terms of those covenant promises, those words of revelation when God condescended to speak to man, those words have not changed, but have now come to their fulfillment in the word who takes flesh Upon himself. In Genesis, the word has power. The word speaks and it comes to be. The word has inherent authority. The word does not have derived authority. The word is intelligible. We understand the word as God makes his presence known. The word is not an abstract concept but one who has beheld these witnesses, those who beheld by their own witness have seen this one and they testify to him as they understand and convey his person and his work to us. Leon Morris says that John's gospel is like a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant can swim. It is both simple and profound. For the beginning in the faith and the mature Christian, its appeal is immediate and never failing. And it's John's combination of simplicity and profundity that often leaves one wondering whether we have caught all his meaning. And we see this multi-layered complexity right from the very beginning as John uses this Greek term logos 
to ascribe to the word who has come among us. He intentionally draws upon the Greek concept of ultimate being, and yet he does not bow to Greek philosophy. For the Greek, the concept of logos is the source of all that exists, but the Greek logos is more of an impersonal force rather than something or someone knowable. The Greek logos has implanted within all of mankind a spark of divinity that man, through mystical experience or through some sort of secret enlightenment that's unexplainable, might one day transcend and be united with this realm of the divine. And so as John uses this word logos, again, such a loaded word, this word takes the Hebrew mind all the way back to the beginning of creation, to the covenant God who spoke at the very beginning, who brought all things into existence by the power of that word. And it takes the Greek to the futility and vanity of his own system of thought and shows that Jesus, this one who has come in flesh, who is fully divine, this one who is eternal and yet personal and knowable. And then John goes on to tell us what the word did. All things were made through him, he says in verse 3. There is nothing in the created realm that exists apart from him. He is the origin of all things. He is the sustainer of all that he has made. The way that Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, he is the image, excuse me, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and through him and for him. And so again, he is not some sort of subordinate being who was just there at creation, watching all of these things unfold before him. But in him is the fullness of divinity. This one who made the world has now come into the world. The one who created man in his image now takes that image upon himself. And you begin to sense already, don't you, that call to worship, to wonder, to believe, to turn and to trust in him. Meditating upon such wondrous truths can really do our souls good when we struggle with the daily grind of life. I've been reading a biography on Martin Luther by Carl Truman. And Truman says that in our own day, we tend to look for techniques, things that we can do in order to solve our problems. Thus, the woman whose marriage is falling apart might well think that she needs to go to a church where the sermon series is on putting your marriage back together. Luther would disagree. The person whose life is falling apart and who is thus tempted to despair needs to know Christ. And knowing Christ requires knowing who he is and what he has done. In other words, it is simple, catechetical doctrine. We tend to despair because we overestimate the powers of our enemies, the world, the flesh, death, and the devil. The answer to despair is thus an appropriate understanding of the overwhelming power of the God who made himself weak by taking human flesh and dying upon the cross. And so you see how eminently practical it is to dwell upon such rich theological truth from John's prologue. And no matter how familiar a text of Scripture might be to us, no matter how many times we might hear a sermon from John's prologue, we need to hear it again. 
because we need to hear of the glorious nature of Christ. And as we hear of His glorious nature, it's this truth that helps us drive out such things as despair, fear, worry, discouragement, and more. And then John tells us the significance of what the Word came to do. Who He is, what He has done in creation, and what He has come to do now by taking flesh upon Himself. He is life itself, and He is light shining in the darkness. And these two themes of light and life, John returns to again and again throughout his gospel. One commentator says that it is this bold exclusivism in the gospel that Jesus alone is life, that Jesus alone is light. It's that rhetoric that does not sit well in a pluralistic world. The light of the world and the spiritual darkness of this world are not compatible. And so as we encounter this one who is the word, who is eternal, who is life, who is light, and yet we oppose him. But as much as we oppose him, he will never be overcome by the world. The darkness shall not overcome him. It is a light that will never be extinguished. And what comfort we need from this in our own time. When we read of the darkness of this world, when we read of the horrific acts of violence and hatred against the unborn and those who very callously support such acts, it can seem like the darkness is overwhelming. It can seem like the darkness is choking out the light. But the comfort and the hope that we have is that the darkness cannot overcome the light of our Lord. He cannot cease to be sovereign and good. Were all the nations of the world to gather together and outlaw the name of Christ, they could not choke out the light of the world. Herman Ritterboss says that the world did not know him, not because he was a stranger, but because it was estranged from him. And so the darkness we see around us is a reflection of hearts that are hardened against the Lord, that are filled with hatred towards their creator. Later in chapter 3, Jesus says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. And so the exhortation here for us is that not only does the world love darkness because its deeds are evil and because it loves sin, but what about within our own hearts? When the light exposes the darkness within, we defend, we blame shift, we redefine and we recategorize it to be something other than what it really is. And so we need the light of the Lord Jesus, the light of his truth to continue to shine in the darkness of our own hearts. And again, as opposed to the Greek notion of logos, the word which has come to dwell among us, this true light of the world is an historical reality such that John, the forerunner, forerunner of Christ, bears witness to him. See, for the Greek, the transcendent would be unknowable and unexplainable. But John the Baptist and John the author, the author of this book and many others throughout this book bear witness and bear testimony to that which they have seen to the historical reality of the glory of the Word. And these are other key concepts that John dwells upon throughout his book. Witness and testimony. 
One who bears witness and testimony points to that which is objective, that which they have seen with their own eyes. It would be a a horrible crime that would be met with a, a terrible punishment if someone bore witness in a false manner to what he did not see. But instead, John, John the Baptist, John the author, and others, they do not espouse their own opinions, but are testifying to the historical reality of what they have seen. And because they have seen and they record such truths, we are called to believe as well. Now, a final major theme of John here in his prologue has to do with the glory of God revealed. Now, this prologue really comes to a head in verse 14, if you look there again with me. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. A more literal translation I'm sure you've heard before is the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And of course, this language of tabernacle is loaded with covenantal anticipation. See, the dilemma for mankind is how can we know God? How can we know Him truly? How can we see Him clearly? How can we dwell in His presence? How can we, in a sustained manner, behold His glory? And the answer, as John says it here in verse 14, is by divine initiative. It is God who has determined to come and dwell among His people. Not in a temporary manner as he did in times of old, but in fullness as his glory is revealed in the incarnate Son. In the book of Exodus, when the children of Israel were redeemed from captivity in Egypt, they were brought to the foot of Mount Sinai. And they were given instructions on how the tabernacle of the Lord was to be built. The place in which God would come and dwell in that movable tent with his people. And while Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting instructions from the Lord on this amazing provision, when he's being told how the tabernacle is to be constructed, the people down below are becoming impatient. And so Aaron makes for them the golden calf that they bow down and worship. And when Moses descends from the mountain, he sees what is going on and throws the tablets of stone down, for they have already desecrated the terms of the covenant. He takes the golden calf and throws it into the fire, takes the ash and scatters it in the water and forces the people to drink it. And Moses then returns to the mountain to meet with the Lord to find out what is to become of the people. And God says to him, Long ago I swore to your forefathers that I would give you this land. And because I promised to do so, I will make good upon that promise. I will go before you and I will drive out the enemies." Before you and bring you into the spacious land, but I will not dwell among you, lest I consume you, for you are a stiff necked people. I will meet with you, Moses, outside of the camp, but I will not dwell among you. Dr. Edmund Clowney points out isn't this what most people want with religion? To have God out there somewhere? To have the professional deal with Him on my behalf? How close do you really want God? Do you want to keep Him at arm's length? Perhaps you want sort of a loose connection with the church, with the people of the church, someone there to pray for you. You want God there to protect you, to defeat your enemies, but you don't want God really in your midst. 
Most people, if they heard God say, I will dwell out there, but not in your midst, most people would be okay with that. But how does Moses react? Well, in Exodus chapter 33, he says to the Lord, if you will not dwell among us, then there's no point in going forward at all. Because this is at the heart of God's covenant dealings with his people, that he would dwell among them, that he would dwell in their very midst. And at the heart of this dialogue between the Lord and Moses, Moses states his longing to behold the glory of God. And the Lord graciously places Moses in the cleft of the rock because he cannot see the full glory of God and live. And as the Lord passes, you'll recall, he puts his hand over the face of Moses as he goes by and he reveals his glory to him. And it's not just a visual revelation but it's an audible revelation as the Lord God reveals himself to him as gracious and compassionate, full of grace and truth. And now John, all of these years later, is telling us that all of these Old Testament promises are now realized in Christ Jesus, who tabernacles among us, not in temporary or provisional status, but in fullness and in permanency. And these witnesses bear testimony that they have beheld his glory full of grace and truth. The same words of Exodus 33 are used here in John chapter 1. The Lord who showed himself to Moses as a God of grace and truth has now come in flesh. And his glory is revealed in grace and truth. But we are not consumed. He dwells among us and makes us. His inheritors. Well, what should our response be to the prologue of John's gospel? Well, again, throughout the book, John is calling you to believe. Even here in these first few verses, John is calling you to put your faith in the incarnate Lord. And there are really only two responses that you can have to this word in flesh. The one that we read about in this text is absolutely astonishing. The fact that men would have nothing to do with him. You see, this is good news. This is the greatest of news. This is news that has eternal implications. This is the message of life eternal. A message of grace and kindness and love. Such love that God would send his only son into the world. Such light, not of condemnation, but light of life. Light that exposes the darkness within. Light that illumines man's condition and need. Light that points us to himself as a substitute for sinners. Such grace to receive forgiveness of sins. And yet there's this amazing and frightening response of hatred toward him. Because men prefer the darkness. His own should have received him. The children of Israel had these words of promise from of old. They were a privileged people, and they should have embraced him, but instead they reject him. But God in his grace will not have his purposes thwarted by men's hard hearts. This rejection of the light is not the end of the story. For in verse 12, we read that there is acceptance, there is faith in Christ. There are those who are God's chosen people who bow before his authority. And there is this privileged status bestowed upon them of becoming children of the living God. And so don't be among the tragic ones who simply hear. Don't be among those who grow up having access to these words of promise, but reject it. 
Don't be among the privileged who reject him because of your love for darkness, because of your love for self-interest, because of your love for self-glory. But he is calling you to receive, to believe, to behold his glory and truth and grace, to marvel that he does not treat us as our sins deserve, but by his sovereign work of adoption we are brought into his family. This is just the prologue, and there's so much more. Clear enough for a child to wade in, deep enough for an elephant to swim. Such rich content, such in-depth theology, such things that John returns to again and again throughout the narrative. This is a message which never changes, a message that we need to hear again and again. All around us are voices proclaiming that life is meaningless And yet at the same time, you can construct meaning in whatever way you want. I read recently of a new venture by Stephen Hawking, in which he's befriended a billionaire from Russia who has put together a a fund that's reaching $100 million to look for life beyond, to look for some alien life, which we know is out there. We have to find meaning. We have to find purpose. And yet we are the ones that are foolish for believing in the truth of Scripture. What joy and delight that we can turn to such a familiar text of God's word and find meaning and purpose. What comfort to know that we don't have to look to the stars above and find meaning and purpose. It has come down here to us in flesh, in the person of our Savior. Imagine that you are about to enter a great historical building, an architectural marvel, something that you've longed to visit for a number of years, And outside of that building is one of those um, historical markers, you know, that you read about that tells you when the building began its construction. Who was the mastermind in the architecture behind it? Some of the obstacles that they ran in along the way. How it stood the test of time through world wars and other horrific events such as famine and more. You would not just read that placard and then leave as though that were sufficient. But, of course, you would continue to look and to be marveled and amazed with your own eyes. In many ways, it's an orientation preparing you for what you're about to enter. Let the prologue of John's gospel encourage you to read and to marvel again and again at the wonder of our Savior. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we thank you for your word of truth, which is living and active, penetrating even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Lord, would you use such word of truth in our lives uh, to allow us, enable us to marvel again and again at the amazing finished work of our Savior, the one who came in flesh, who took our sin upon himself, and who now clothes us in his righteousness, continuing to mediate for that heavenly throne room on our behalf. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.